Welcome to Drinking Bros Sports, brought to you by KillCliffCBD.com. Sit back, relax, and grab a fucking drink. Welcome to Drinking Bros Sports, kids. Happy to have you here today. Bob, we got a huge guest today. Yeah, yeah. One of the, I'd say one of the biggest sports personalities we've had on the on the network. And, and uh, well, biggest sports personalities probably in the history of the business, to be honest with you. It's uh, Armin Katan. How are you, sir? I'm good, guys. How are you? Man, I'm uh, unbelievable. Um, grew up with you as a child. And uh, here's, here's the thing. You just kept going forever and ever and ever, and you haven't stopped. I feel like... You've seen and done every single thing in sports. Um, and even up until recently, I, I just saw you in the Tiger Woods doc um, yeah. based on your book that you helped produce that you were, you were you know, actually in itself. Um, I guess let's start there and then we'll rewind because that's fresh on everybody's minds. When I watched that doc, um, I learned a lot about Tiger Woods that I had no idea about, um, including you know, the, uh, the backstory with, with Earl and what he was doing or, uh, as Tiger was a kid. Um, did you guys know covering him all these years about Tiger Woods? No, not really. When Jeff and I originally came up with the idea, actually it was our agent's idea. We were coming off uh, the system, the book that we had done on big time college football. And frankly, I wasn't really looking for another project. I was pretty knee deep at 60 Minutes and 60 Minutes Sports. Um, and the system was interesting because the proposal for that book ran 60 pages, um, trying to explain what kind of landscape we were going to cover. The Tiger Woods proposal, honestly, was four pages long. And <laughs> it was basically um, when our agent brought it up, you know, Jeff and I both said, God, hasn't there been enough books written about Tiger Woods? And but when we did some digging, we realized that there had been a lot of books, but they were all written in very specific parts of his life. So either growing up, um, just as he turned pro, Earl had obviously written three different books. Mm -hmm. There was another book written, for example, um, right after his huge run in the, in the early 2000s. Um, and then another book written after the, after the car crash in, in 2009. But no one had ever done this immersive 360 degree look at Tiger's life. And the more that we looked at it, the more we realized it was the kind of biography that we wanted to write. We were both looking to take a pretty big swing at something much like the system. And we thought, okay, um, you know, this is the guy sort of, if you're going to climb a mountain, Mount Woods is a, is a pretty good place to, to go. Um, importantly, we asked for three years to do it because we knew um, normally you can do a book in 18 months or two years. We asked for that additional year because we knew that we just had to do a lot of reading and, and kind of bring ourselves up to speed with everything that had been written previously. And then, and I think what you found in the doc is, is really the result of a lot of our reporting was we just found people that had never talked publicly about Tiger's life before, you know, whether it was, um, you know, Adina Gravel, his first serious true love girlfriend in high school, or the woman that rented the house at the masters to Tiger and, and Earl for several years in a row before she really got sick of how they were treating the house. So um, we didn't, I mean, certainly I'd seen him m multiple times on television. I was in awe of his, of his uh, talent, 
but I didn't think anybody really knew who the real Tiger Woods was um, because Tiger's so careful about his public image. And the thing that really intrigued me the most was, you know, what's the price of genius? Um, what, you know, what is the cost of being the absolute best um, in, your, in your world? And I think that's what the doc was so successful in answering those two questions based on a lot of our reporting in the book. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and it's funny you said that. What, what is the cost of genius? Because I had said that to my wife. Is it possible? I, I did. I, like, Are you talking about yourself? Well, <laughs> well probably. but Probably, yes. Yes. I mean, I, I've, I've done a lot of crazy shit, like book-wise. Like, dude, yeah. a, a book is a mountain. Like, I've been number one in the world having a book. You have as well. It is so impossible when you look back at it. You're like, holy shit, I can't believe this happened. Um, yeah. But but we were talking about just the cost of a book, let alone the movies and podcasts and all that other stuff. Yeah. You have to sacrifice so much that I said, I turned to her after, after part one and I said, I don't think it's possible to make it to that level. And I'm not Tiger Woods, obviously, without being an asshole. Because um, she'll get on me sometimes about the way I, I, I treat people or or if I'm not happy if something's right and I've fully admitted it all the time where I'm like, yes, dude, I, I want perfect audio sound book. Why? Like I, I want the best of the best at all times. Cause I want to be the best um, with tiger, you know, looking back at it, that was my first takeaway of, of I turned to her and I was like, you see what the cost is of all this shit? Like, I don't know that you can be nice. And then the interesting part about it was that was part one. I would argue that nice is different than, I think you can be respectful to people. I think you can be, and you're right, that one of the things that Jeff and I did was we never put ourselves in Tiger's shoes and tried to judge him because I don't think it's possible to judge what it's like to be Tiger Woods, to be 21 years old and 22 years old, being in Las Vegas with Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley and living that life where every girl that you, that you meet or they bring to you at one of the clubs wants to sleep with you it's just, it's just a world in which very, very few people live in. I, I would argue that there's a certain level of humanity that comes into these moments that Tiger was just not able to, um, um, to portray at all. And I think that goes back to Earl and Earl's teachings. So nice is one thing, but I don't think Tiger showed much respect for people that did um, absolutely life-altering things for him. And then when their period of time of usefulness had evaporated, I mean, they were summarily excommunicated from, you know, the Church of Woods. And I, I have issues with that, but that's what the doc showed. And I think that's what our reporting showed is that's part of the price of genius. That's part of the price that, that is paid sometimes by athletes in the way they treat other people. It doesn't make it right. It just makes it the way it is. Yeah, and, and look, I'm not saying I've like an asshole and discarded people and anything else. I'm just saying like the work and the process of all of this stuff, oh. uh, I just want it to go correctly. And if we work together or for me or whatever, like, hey, that's what you're getting paid to do, do that job. And then let's move on with our lives. Um, but in part two of the doc, uh, that's when I had a different outlook of him where, yeah. I had no idea the stuff about his father was going on and everything else. And then at the end, I felt bad for Tiger Woods, which was crazy. And I don't know if that was the intent of you guys writing the book or the intent of the filmmaker, but I had a totally different outlook of who he was um, 
because of well, you know what was going on behind the scenes. You're absolutely right. In um, there were times when Jeff and I were writing the book when we were about two thirds of the way through it, where we would have these very serious conversations about I don't like this guy. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's really hard to like him right now. And if you're a reader, and we're thinking in 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 the mindset of the reader is like, wow, this book's going to grind to a complete halt here just because of the way that Tiger is treating people at this point in time. But by the end, after everything he goes through, those last four or five years of his life leading up to, you know, basically when he wins the Masters in 19, um, you begin, the word we have heard time and time again is sorry for Tiger. People began to feel sorry. They began to empathize with Tiger. And I think that's how we felt. And that's what you know, Matt Hamachek and, and Matt Heineman, the two directors, and particularly Matt Hamachek, who did an incredible job on this as one of the really the primary director of it. We would have these conversations a lot about the same things that Jeff and I were going through because he's looking at all these interviews and he's seeing what you're seeing and going, God, it's just really hard to like this guy right now. But in the end, what's the arc? How do you, you know, what do you want to leave people with um, when you're when they're watching the credits? And I think that feeling of empathy is the one that we were really trying to convey is you, you we put you in his shoes um, in so many different places that in the end, um, I mean, you saw what happened at the Masters. You saw what's happening now after this last and this latest accident. There's a tremendous amount of, I think, built up a sadness and be empathy for Tiger right now. And, and um, you know, I think we're all kind of waiting to see what this next chapter of his life is going to look like. Yeah. And, and I think part of it too, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this one was um, because I feel this way about LeBron. Now I feel like there is a lot of reporters or a lot of people who know information behind the scenes who are afraid to say anything. Therefore you really never got a cohesive look at Tiger Woods's life because they were afraid if you got blackballed by Tiger Woods or his team, you weren't getting the story that week. And let's face it. He was the biggest story for close to 20 years. You're right. And I think that the golf writers generally, and I've sat in a lot of those press conferences, first of all, they're not terribly conducive to asking a tough question because everything is very much media managed. You know, there's somebody sitting next to the, to the golfer, the professional on at the dais, you know, they single out people in the audience to ask a question. It's not like a, um, like being in an NFL locker room in the good old days or being at the final four where you could raise your hand and ask a question. Um, and you could ask a direct question. I think the golf writers in generally, it's a more congenial sport. They're more, more willing to just focus on the sport itself and not what's happening um, off the course. And then again, with Tiger, it was doubly complicated because Mark Steinberg, his agent, was so protective of Tiger that any kind of one-on-one -on -one interview, one-on-one -on -one situation, there was going to be a kind of a quid pro quo there for something that Tiger was promoting or of the brand ambassador for. So you now you know you're on kind of shaky ground about asking tough questions. And without a doubt, if you got on the wrong side of Tiger Woods with a direct question, and I've seen him and I've heard him and I've read transcripts, you're, you know, the odds of you getting a, any kind of unique access are next to nothing. So all of that combined to kind of burnish Tiger's image and to really present the kind of image that everybody 
looked at and went, oh my God, he's living such an incredible life. And what a great person he is. And, you know, all the things he does for charity and, and Tiger Woods Foundation. But, you know, as we discovered it, and, and certainly in the doc, you see it, you know, there were multiple sides of Tiger Woods' life. And as I think I said in the doc, at times there were three or four or five different lives that he was living. Um, and those lives at a certain point in time intersected. And that's where, you know, I think the computer, as we like to call them sometimes, you know, just broke down, the circuits fried, and the result, the first result was that accident on Thanksgiving in, in 2009. Yeah, it's, uh, man, it's, it's such a crazy rise and fall of an athlete. Um, it's hard to compare him to anybody else. But again, if, you're, if, if your book and, you're, and the doc didn't come out and you saw what his childhood was like, well, yeah, most people end up emulating their father. Um, and when he died in particular, it reminded me of when Jordan's dad died uh, and you go through this series of, you know, trying to make up for, for this, this great loss that you have inside of you. And then you, you do all these wild shit for back of a, lack of a better term. Um, you know, most of my best friends are military. And so I knew the things that he was doing with the Navy SEALs and all that stuff behind the scenes and also knew that he was getting hurt. Um, and then I w- we would hear wild stories behind the scenes about him. Uh, you know, a, a check would come for, for a dinner that was 200 bucks, and there was six Navy SEALs sitting there at a, at a dinner, and he would ask for separate checks. Yeah. Can you believe that? No, I, mean, no, I couldn't. <laughs> like, I, I, I mean, and neither could they. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's rural. It's interesting, you know, right now there's, um, there's a scripted series being developed and I've seen the pilot episode, not seen the episode, but I've seen the script for the pilot episode. It'll probably be seven or eight um, episodes if it gets made, which I believe it will get made. But the first, the pilot is really about Earl. Um, it's, he is the predominant character in the pilot. Tita shows up, Tiger's mom. Tiger's obviously, you know, from a very early age to through flashbacks, you see pictures of Tiger in certain situations. But the, it is a story of a father and a son, and it's a son learning from a father and a son teaching a, a father teaching a son certain things, both viscerally and and um, very directly. So, I've always found that to be, frankly, the most fascinating part of the Tiger Woods story. Is if you don't understand Earl Woods and you don't understand Tita Woods, you will never understand Tiger Woods. Yeah. No. And look, I think most things in life come back to a father and a son, especially as a, a boy or a man growing up. And uh, yeah, I, you know, having gone through the loss of a father myself, it's a weird feeling that you, you can't really describe unless somebody else goes through it and then you're able to, to discuss it. But uh, you know, men often don't talk about their feelings and things like that. So it gets brushed aside and nobody ever knows. And you also don't know how it's going to affect them. Uh, speaking of which, how did you get into the field of, of sports journalism? Was your, did your father push you into it? Was he an athlete? How did you start? No, I was, um, it's interesting. I, I had two real loves in life early on. One was reading. I loved to read. And the other one was sports. And I, was a, I would say I was a much better than average athlete in high school. I was the most valuable player of a uh, conference that had um, some really good players on a team that was like 30 and three our senior year and seven of us went to play college baseball from that one high school team. So 
I always had this love of sports. I grew up in Detroit, one of the great sports towns in America. Um, but the love of reading transferred to a love of writing. And so I had a, I guess, a sort of an epiphany with David Halberstam, who wrote a book called The Best and the Brightest on the Vietnam War, which was a life-changing kind of an experience for me because of the kind of reporting that went into that book. And I was living through that period of time in the 60s with the Vietnam War. Um, I believe I read it in my junior year in high school. And then I wrote for the high school paper. Um, when I played baseball in college, I wrote for the college paper. Um, and then I just kind of started that track. I graduated from San Diego State in 1976 with a degree in journalism. And, um, you know, I started out at a weekly newspaper that was thrown on people's doorsteps on Wednesday afternoon called the Life News. And um, it was a shopper and I was the sports editor. Um, and the only reason I was the sports editor was because I was the only person in the sports department. So <laughs> I got to name myself the sports editor and give myself a column. Um, but I was there for four months. And then I went to um, a suburban daily in Escondido, California called the Times Advocate which was owned by the Chicago Tribune at the time. And it was a very well-respected um, suburban daily. And I wrote there for two years, covered everything from the Chargers to San Diego State, to high school sports, to um, you name it. Um, and I really learned whether I really wanted to be a journalist. Um, because until you put your feet in the fire, you know, everything looks really interesting. But when you have to write one or two stories a day, every day, and you're in your mid-20s and you're looking around going, okay, is this really what I want to do with my life? And uh, the answer was I wasn't really sure. And so I took a break and I worked, um, I worked for a sports public relations firm to see if I liked that, which I didn't. And then I just started writing for the San Diego Union and San Diego Magazine freelancing and um, sending my clips back to Sports Illustrated. And that went on for the better part of a year. Um, I won some local writing awards in San Diego and for things that I wrote for the union and for San Diego magazine. And I just kept sending those clips back and I was kind of a pain in the ass to um, Bambi Bachman, who was then the, you know, the chief of, of researchers at, at SI. And in 1982, you know, at a time when those jobs were, you know, like diamonds, um, I got offered a job at SI in, and it was basically February of 1982, I'm in San Diego. I've been married for not quite three years. My wife is pregnant, eight months pregnant with our first child. And I get an offer to go to New York to work for Sports Illustrated at 29 years old to make a grand total of $27,000 a year in 1982. Oh boy. Not, not the most heartwarming <laughs> prospect in the world. And I actually turned the job down. I had to turn it down. My wife said to me, who I'm still married to for 42 <laughs> years, said to me, there's no way on God's green earth I'm moving to New York City in the dead of winter, eight months pregnant. You can't take this job. Now, those jobs came along around once every blue moon, right? Yeah. Well, in April, they call back and they say, we've had another opening. Um, we're going to offer you this job again. We're not asking a third time. And um, so I took it and I actually left San Diego by myself and came to New York, stayed with friends for about three months, you know, couch surfing and sleeping in my office sometimes at SI. Um, 
And um, finally, my wife came in August and, um, you know, that was the beginning of seven years at the magazine where I went from, you know, a fact checker, basically, um, at 29 years old to becoming the magazine's, I guess it's safe to say their top investigative, you know, reporter, writer, reporter for the magazine. And that led to another life-changing opportunity for me when I went to the Olympics with Mike Weissman at NBC to cover them in Seoul. Um, when he put this group together called the Soul Searchers, it was uh, some really interesting high-powered sports reporters from around the country. That got me an audition at ABC News, and that got me hired by Rune Arledge. And that, that was the one, I mean, SI was, you know, like hitting a grand slam. ABC News was like double that because of, that was Peter Jennings, and it yep. was Rune and in just a, an unbelievable cast of, of correspondents, Dick Schapp among them. And I learned, I got a PhD in how to, how to write for television when I was there. Do, have you remained a Detroit sports team? Like, uh, is that, is that still, you know, are you Tigers, Lions? Yeah. I got yeah. I had to ask. Yeah. It's just awful right now. <laughs> I mean, it's one, it's one continuous, um, form of of um i don't even know what you'd call it it's just self-loathing i'm I'm an atlanta fan yep yep you know when you just i mean i when i was at um cbs sports you know i i covered the lions you know because we did i was with greg and phil on the a games but we'd always do the thanksgiving day game and i went into detroit that year they were 0 and 16 you know and that was just like we walked out of that building and phil turned to me and he goes they got no chance to win here None. <laughs> because of some of the people that we are interviewing, they just had, you know, they had given up hope. Um, you know, I mean, I, it's so hard now. Um, and I don't really follow sports the way I did in the past. Cause I, I just have other things that are going on in my life, but I still look at the Pistons, you know, the bad boys and, and how great they were. Um, part of a book I did called money players, um, with Harvey Ayrton and, and a guy by the name of Martin Dardis from the magazine. Um, there was a chapter on, and I just learned a lot about the bad boys from Bill Lambeer and Joe Dumars and Vinnie Johnson. And that was a, that was a group that um, if you love sports, you love the way that they, they attack the game and the way they played the game. And, and then, you know, I've had my heart broken several times with the Tigers and, and people like that. So, well, the, the Tigers in the 80s, though, had great. They had uh, well, Alan they, Trammell. They had a nice run. Kurt Gibson. Yeah, I mean, they had a nice run not that long ago. I, maybe the greatest rotation to never win a World Series in that. No kidding. Uh, Scherzer and uh, Verlander. And um, there was a third Cy Young winner on that, too, that I'm blanking on. Um but yeah, God, that those yeah, teams. It's just you know, I was a Tiger fan in the '60s. You know, when they won in '68, and um, you know, I can name, I can pretty much name that starting lineup off the top of my head. And Al Kaline was a was just an idol when I was growing up. He was a hero. And then um, you know, Gibson and and those those some Trammell and Whitaker and those Tiger yeah. teams were you know Petrie and some of those guys that really played the game hard. Um, you know, but I've also been to Tiger games where I've watched um, people in right field um, jog across that field or walk from right field to a dugout. When I watched Al Kaline sprint from right field into the dugout every single inning of every single game of his life, 
And those are the kind of players I don't really want to watch. You know, I'm not interested in that kind of effort. So I actually have a question about player uh, body language here. Uh, you were on the sideline uh, for the famous Brady Tuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What uh, what was what was the reaction on the ground? Wh whose sideline were you by? And like, what was like? I how were the players? Patriots sideline. Um, and I was there when I saw, which I think is still the greatest clutch kick in the history of the NFL was Vinatieri's two iron from whatever it was, 40 some yards away with that wind and that cold. Oh yeah. That scene. Um, I was like, I was absolutely gobsmacked when he, when he made it. Cause I didn't think there was a chance in hell that thing was going to go through the goalposts. And then, um, you know, it was just chaos. And, uh, you know, when you're on the field, the one thing you don't want to do in a situation like that is, is open your mouth because you know, until the producer says to you, Armin, what's going on down there? Because you know, in that situation, Mark Wolf, who was the, the producer, um, who I've worked with in so many games, I just knew that he had to have control of the situation. And he was talking to Greg and Phil to kind of figure out how they were going to play um, the results of, of, of the, uh, of the review. And it was just, I mean, again, it was just one of those moments where your jaw drops open and you're like, Oh my God, they're going to win this game now. And it was, you know, I, we did a lot of Patriots games and I spent a lot of time in the Patriots locker room in much of their run of their six Super Bowls. I was never around a more professional sports franchise than I was when there was, and I know I'm going to miss some, but it's Junior Seau, Rodney Harrison, Richard Seymour, Tom Brady, um, Mike Vrabel, uh, Ty Law, Lawyer Malloy, um, just an incredible group. Teddy Bruschi, A yep. number one, just an incredible group of professionals. And that's a word that, you know, gets tossed around a lot, I think. But those, that was the most professional football team I'd ever seen. And um, I mean, they would do things like have contests to see how much water they could drink during the day. So hydration <laughs> contests just to see, you know, who was the best one. And, and, and Tom, who we saw um, in his rookie year and when he won the Super Bowl and we saw him in the following year where Tom was kind of overwhelmed with the fame and the celebrity and the obligations and sexiest man alive on people magazine and all that stuff. Um, he got set straight by Charlie Weiss, who was the offensive coordinator at the time. And I'll never forget. Charlie said to Tom, you know, there's a difference between what you want to do and what you have to do. And what you have to do is be in here every day. The first guy in the last guy to leave, you have to set the tone and, and send a message to all of your teammates that you're all in on this thing. And this is the most important thing in your life. And that changed Tom. And I think, you know, you're seeing the results of that. Now, what he did in Tampa Bay is exactly what, you know, he did in, in new England, which was to put up a shingle and say, you know, the bullshit's done here. Now, um, this is how we're going to prepare. And this is the, this is the bar that, that I'm going to set for every single person in this organization. And there are not a lot of people that can do that. I mean, Peyton Manning was one for sure. I think Michael Jordan was one 
Um, you know, I go back to the Isaiah Thomases in Detroit. Those people did that. Um, those athletes are so rare. Um, and it's just a pleasure to be around them when you see the, the impact that they can have on people who think they're working, you know? Yeah. One, one person you didn't name there was, uh, LeBron James. Um, just out of curiosity, why? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I think LeBron, in fact, Jeff Benedict, who I'm, you know, I've written two big books with is now working on a book about LeBron and he is, he's, I don't know now, I think about a year into it. I mean, he's, he's very impressed and I, I don't know LeBron. I, I literally, the only thing I know about LeBron in a personal sense was I actually was covering the decision. I covered the decision for CBS or ABC. I forget which year it was um, at Greenwich high school, not far from where I live in Connecticut. And that was a, you know, that was a debacle from, <laughs> from the word go. And uh, yeah, I can just remember going, what the hell is going on here? Um, you know, and I know Jim Gray and I have a lot of respect for Jim. And um, I don't, I still to this day don't know. I, I haven't read Jim's book. I'm sure it's probably in there, but I, to this day, I don't know what the hell they were thinking, you know, to, to wait that long to before he decided to take his, his uh, talents to, uh, the oh, South man. Beach, yeah. <laughs> I saw a, like a, a special on that whole thing. I, f- I forget what it was, um, but you know, they were there, there was cutaways to Jim Gray when during the commercial breaks, and uh, you can you can see him saying, "All right, so what what do you want me to ask about here?" Yeah. <laughs> I, they hadn't even given him any talking points or nothing. Questions, yeah. I'm, and, I'm three questions in, and I'm running out of questions. Yeah, and they they still have an hour to fill, and he's just like, "What do you do? What do you do? What do you do?" The whole thing was so poorly put together uh, on, you know, they didn't think much about it. And then LeBron gets on a plane afterwards. He doesn't know that the whole world hates him until he lands. Like the, it's a, it's a crazy story. Well, and- he hated him. I can tell you that I was standing outside Greenwich high school trying to, you know, and I got everybody and their mother in my ear asking me, so what where is he going? What's his decision? What's his decision? I'm like, I don't know. You're watching it just like I am. I have no <laughs> idea. It's just a, you know, it's a world-class uh, shit show at this point in time. <laughs> Speaking of uh, world-class shit shows, where were you during the OJ run when he was uh, in the Bronco and all that stuff? That just popped on two days ago, um, on a, like a 30 for 30, and I ended up watching, uh, you know, I always, I, for whatever reason, that OJ story, I just get locked in forever. Um, I was at ABC News, but I was in a, I, I remember I was in a bar in Pontiac, Michigan, watching what I think was the NBA trying to get to the NBA finals. It was the, was yeah, the they NBA were finals. in it. They were in it. Yeah. They were, it was during the, the game. NBA finals. I'm in this bar with some of my best friends from Detroit and we're just hanging out. I've got a weekend off. I don't know. I was in, in Detroit for some reason. And then I'm, I'm like, what? <laughs> a Bronco OJ. And then, you know, the, the, the room just went dead silent after that and watching it. And then I was at ABC and, um, you know, I was around um, with Rune and I, and I remember what, the one thing of the many things that Rune Arledge had, he had an incredible ability to understand big moments. And he knew right from the start that this was going to rearrange kind of the furniture in America in terms of celebrity and, um, um, and this fascination which with watching other people's lives disintegrate sometimes in front of you, which has become, I think, kind of a 
a pro sport in our world these days. But I do remember, um, I remember being, and this is, a, I remember being at Doug Looney's house, who was a senior writer at Sports Illustrated in Boulder, Colorado, when Aaron Brown, who was covering the OJ trial for us, um, and you know, when you're in that business and you're a correspondent and you're doing these big stories, like when I covered Sandusky and that whole thing, all I thought about was what I was going to write, you know, the next script I was going to write, mm -hmm. the next thing I was going to do for that, for that story. That was as big a moment for a television correspondent as you possibly get. And you could have taken a big swing and a miss on a just the facts kind of script. Aaron wrote this three-part opera that literally I think was about nine minutes of, of the network television of World News Tonight that night when you're 21 minutes um, overall on a show. And I just remember just being awestruck by the fact that how in the hell did he come up with all that? And I spoke to him later on about it. I said, how did that come to you? Because it was, it was really operatic. He goes, I, was, I would drive around LA in the middle of the night on the freeways when they were empty. And all I would do was think in my head about different ways to start the, this. I knew this was gonna be a three act play I was gonna write. And, um, and in the end, he just, he pulled it off in ways that, you know, anybody that can find that at this point in time that loves television writing, um, I would get it because it was, it was just masterful. So that's a long winded way of saying, you know, um, I didn't have an answer for your question. He's won 11, you've won 11 Emmys yeah. and you don't have an answer yeah. for the question. It was honestly though, a great professional sounding non-answer. Like it was very articulate, it was a very, the most articulate non-answer I've ever heard. Of it sounded like every athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Every athlete on the sideline, we gave it 110%. We're going to take yeah. it a day at a time. And, uh, had a few of those. Yeah, I'm sure you've had millions of them. Our look, our, I say this all the time. Uh, our hardest interviews on all of these shows, because we we own a media company, it's about 15, 16 shows, is athletes. Um, it's the same current athletes. Current athletes, correct. Same yeah. stock standard answers for all this shit. NFL players are the worst by far. Um, they can't say or do anything. And then. As it's gone by, I put some professional golfers up there. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched them, and I'm like, I don't know. I think I know who you are, but you sound like 15 other guys. Um, and I, I like to listen to PGA Tour radio on on Sirius because I'm, I'm I'm a big golf fan. But honest to God, whether it was um, you know Adam Hanlon or the the you know the the, the um, uh, the bell of the ball for the week, it's like, well, I just hit it really good today. I made, made some putts and, you know, I'm just working on just trying to, you know, keep my game under control, not get too high, not get too low. Um, you know, I'm going to be out there tomorrow trying to go low again, but you know, you never know in this game, things can change. <laughs> like, wow, that is so insightful. Thank you so much. Well, well, and I think that's what people love about this Bryson DeChambeau. Uh, yeah. Brooks Kepka. Brooks Kepka. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this it's thing something. is. Thank God. It's like, you know, I mean, say what you want about Tiger, but Tiger made you, you know, you wanted to watch Tiger Woods. And I'm, I, I'm a big fan of golf on Sunday afternoon. I really like, it's kind of a relaxing thing to me to do. I don't have to get too um, involved in it. Um, 
and I love, I love the sport, but man, oh man, thank God for Brooks and, and, and he, you know, pulling Bryson along for the ride and, you know, Phil is, Phil's, I mean, look where Phil is now. He's the go-to guy for sound um, yeah. more so than anybody. And even a guy like Ricky Fowler, who's really struggled because he's so personable is another go-to guy. And then, you know, I just think that um, Rory is another one that people rely on to offer an opinion and insight that doesn't sound like it came out of, um, you know, Scholastic Magazine or something. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't really, I, I mean, but they don't seem to care. I think right now with, you know, there's so much betting going on and golf is such a big gambling sport right now. It doesn't really matter. Um, I think you can say that about eight or 10 other sports at this point in time, but golf certainly um, has really attracted a lot of action. Armin, I feel like a sham having to interrupt an interview like this to talk about our sponsors, but I have to Armin. I'm sorry. First and foremost is kill cliff. Dot com. They are our title sponsor on the sports show. We live and die by the Kill Cliff, in particular the, the Kill Cliff CBD. Best in the biz, 25 milligrams of CBD in every single can. You will not piss hot on a drug test. I know we have a lot of uh, first responders out there in military who listen to the show and drink this product. Look, no THC. Drug test, good to go. Pain relief, you betcha, especially if you throw a little bit of vodka in there. It was KillCliffCBD.com. They have now combined with KillCliff.com. And you can enjoy all of the savings on every product with the promo code DRINKINGBROS for 30% off and free shipping. That is a big deal. Trust me when I say this. If you're shipping cans, 30% off and free shipping is a big deal. Big deal. I'm going through it now, and uh, I don't know how they're doing it, but take advantage of it. Go to KillCliff.com today. I live and die by their CBD products there, 25 milligrams in every single can. The Flamin' Joe has now overtaken the grapest of all time. I love the grape, uh, and then orange is third for me over there, but pick uh, and choose as you want. They've, they've also got variety packs. Go to KillCliff.com, promo code Drinking Bros, 30% off, and free shipping. Next up, We've got DraftKings. Uh, we're on a flight as we speak to Vegas real soon here. Real soon. McGregor versus Poirier 3 is all set for UFC 264. Every punch, kick, and knockout means so much more. DraftKings lineup on the line. DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of UFC, is giving you a shot at huge cash prizes for this weekend's fight DraftKings is offering all customers a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes if you haven't tried it yet fantasy MMA is the easiest way to play just pick six fighters stay under the salary cap and pilot points for advances takedowns and more there's no better way to put your MMA knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at millions of dollars in prizes. Plus, don't forget about basketball. We got the NBA Finals going on, uh, as well as hockey. NHL Finals are also going on right now because the Habs extended it, where DraftKings has even more money up for grabs throughout the week. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. It's McGregor versus Poirier, the rubber match. Get in on the action now. Download the DraftKings app. Use the promo code BROS, that is B-R-O-S, 
for your shot at millions of dollars in total prizes throughout the week. That is promo code BROS to get a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Also, be on the lookout for Delco Dan and Papa G's picks this weekend, along with Chuck Liddell and maybe John Anik. We might get Anik up in this piece this week, and that can help you with uh, your DraftKings pick as well. Uh, good luck, my friends. Last but not least, we got GhostBed.com forward slash drinking bros. Love the ghost bed. That is the, that looked, that's the only downside of going to Vegas. Can't take a mattress with me. Be a lot in shipping. Uh, it's probably more than two bags. Unless I brought the whole goddamn box on the plane. You're right. It gets shipped to your house in a fucking box. It's the best. You can just drag it into any room you have. You get two free pillows with a mattress right now. And I think, wink, wink, the 4th of July deals are still going on those bundle packages. Scroll through their website at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. As always, they got a 36-month pay-as-you-go program. No interest there at ghostbed.com slash drinking bros. And uh, you can bundle all those deals together. And congratulations, you can walk out with a new mattress uh, set for your bedroom for like 35 bucks a month if you have decent credits. Go to ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros today. Thank you, Armin. I apologize. Yeah, we've got a, one of our producers, Delco Dan here uh, off screen. He has called six winners this year. Um, the, the last one you did, you put $25 on, who was it, Cam? Cam Davis, yeah. He won. No way. Yeah. I, and he showed me the betting slips. So, like, he does a he hosts a show with us uh, as well. And I've never seen anything like it. Um, but it's all these weird people that I've never. Who was the guy before that? that like, I've never even heard that fucking guy's name. Um, you got that one too. It's it's the craziest shit ever. But but you're right. I think the future of all of this um, is sports gambling across the board. I've never been shy about it here on this network. I mean. Um, you can bet on everything. The live betting is fun. All of it. I was just in Vegas. I'm working on something that has to do with sports betting. And I was at um, South Point with Jimmy DeCaro. I was, I spent time with Richie Bacheleri and Nick Modanovich. And those, that's like, you know, the Holy Trinity of sports handicappers in, in this country. And I was with Nick when he was looking at screens because um, he's, you know, with Caesars and William Hill, uh-huh. he, their entire book operation and and it was um it was a clippers game and it was the over under it was like 222 and some guy put twenty thousand dollars on the over and nick's looking at it in real time and he doesn't move the line at all he goes yeah that guy's a square i don't worry about him (laughs) you know he couldn't pick his nose right you know that kind of thing yeah then another guy came in at a thousand dollars that was a real sharp and at 222 the over and Nick immediately moved his line to 222 and a half. And um, so it was fascinating to be in their world. Um, it's just right now with all the computer betting, I mean, the computer modeling that's going on, it is so hard to get any kind of advantage on a line these days, particularly in the NFL, because the lines are so, so good. Um, baseball may be different you know, because there's so many games and the matchups are, you know, can be weird, but, um, yeah, baseball is hard to, yeah, baseball's yeah. hard. Uh, I like to go with baseball. I don't even really mess with the games. I'll do player props. 
Yep. Uh-huh. Strikeouts, stuff like that. There is one thing we've done, uh, the golf better uh, producer we're talking about, uh, and myself look at a lot, uh, college football. It still oh, yeah. has, uh, uh, you still have a bit of an advantage statistically if you use the right places. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with, familiar with uh, Bill Connolly from ESPN, the S&P Plus. No, but I mean, there's a lot of models. I'm, I'm yeah. working with some people that are really smart and their models are, I've seen their models and they're put together by people that, I graduated at the top of their class at Caltech. Oh yeah, you know, those kinds of people. Um, they can't put their pants on the same <laughs> way every day, yeah. but they can they can put a number together. Yeah, you know. I, I'm so I'm really great at college and NFL. Um, the I, I went 83. percent It was either last year or the year before in college. I mean, it was just off the charts to, to the point where our wow. sponsor was like, "Hey, dude, can you start missing some of these?" What helped me out, and I'm curious if if this helped you along the years or if you bet at all or whatever, was actually being on the field. So we get field passes for all of this stuff. Um, obviously, I'm not Sports Illustrated or or anywhere near your world. However, being able to see these athletes up close and personal. It's in, especially in college, there's such a huge difference in body type um, that it's once I saw them and I was standing next to them on the field, I was able to pick winners better because like uh, Trevor Lawrence, for example, uh, a couple years ago, I was standing on the field next to him. He looked tall and skinny on TV. And then when I saw him in real life, the guy has the perfect quarterback NFL body. And it was he was like 20 years old at that point and I'm like oh my god he's going to destroy everyone and I you know I started betting on Trevor Lawrence well let me say up front I don't I don't gamble it's it's a vice I don't have um and I'm as part of this process that I'm going through now I'm learning a lot more than I've ever learned before um but that being said I was on you're right I was on the field um I was working on the the system and I was on the field when Alabama played Notre Dame in the national championship. Um, I think it was 2012. 2012. I came out of the tunnel, Notre Dame. I had seen Alabama um, play Georgia um, in, in the um, SEC championship. And I knew um, just, I just knew what kind of physical football team they were. I looked at Notre Dame and, and I saw Manti Teo as, you know, their star linebacker. If I was a betting man, I would have bet my house on Alabama. Just being the <laughs> absolute, um, the stark physical differences between the two football teams. It looked like a varsity football team and a junior varsity football team. And you can see it in NFL games. You can see the physical difference between certain football teams, or you can see a physical difference when, like, for example, when I was at in Nashville covering a Tennessee Titans Baltimore Ravens game when Steve McNair and Eddie George were the stars of the Titans and Eddie would come out of the locker room with his shirt off this six foot four Adonis, you know, running around the field, lathering up a sweat, just kind of giving Ray Lewis and the rest of the, you know, the Baltimore Ravens, an idea of what they were in for all day long with him. <laughs> and those were those games, Eddie, when I talked to him about it, he goes, you know, it was like the Visigoths, you know, there was in the old days where you'd have a, like a turkey leg in your, in your hand and you just put it in your mouth and you'd <laughs> rip it off and then you'd go to war. Those, that's what those football games were like. 
And, and now in college, you can see the difference, certainly, particularly with the power teams like the Alabamas of the world, the Georgias of the world. Ohio um, State. Uh, Ohio State, for sure. I mean, I'm a you know, graduate of, set of tech, uh, San Diego State, and I've seen San Diego State's football team um, up close, and they just don't compare physically to any of the teams that are in the Big Ten or the SEC um, or even the ACC. And that's just a byproduct of, um, you know, where they recruit from and the kind of athletes they're getting. San Diego State has a lot of good athletes, just don't have as many of them, and they're not as, as big and as well-built. Yeah. Uh, I, I, speaking of recruiting, uh, I just want to know, like, you covered – college football and recruiting scandals and everything like that in the eighties, especially right during yeah. uh, SMU and all that. Miami was out of Miami. control. <laughs> I just, what, what, what's the craziest shit you've seen in terms of getting those athletes to those schools? Well, I think, you know, one of the things we heard and I could never prove it though. I don't doubt it. Um, was that, there were certain SEC schools where the there would be one prominent booster that would have um, a function at his house where he would invite um, 20 of his closest friends boosters of that particular program. An assistant coach would go to the house, there'd be a dinner, there'd be drinks, steaks, whatever, and then they would retire to a certain room or on a board was a listing of all the athletes, the, the really transformative game-changing athletes that this particular school wanted to recruit. And each of those men as, as part of their, um, the entry of coming to the house, they would bring a case with $100,000 in cash in it. So if you multiply 20 times 100,000, that gives you a pretty good slush fund to, um, to get the kind of athletes that you're looking for off the books, right? So it's this whole risk reward scenario that goes on in big time college football. And I know enough about the NCAA's enforcement division to know that they are just really swimming upstream um, <laughs> in trying to find the, ferret out the corruption, first of all, find it, ferret it out and then prove it. Um, and everything now is, is a cash business. Um, so that to me is kind of like, I've heard, I've heard a lot of different numbers. There was a tight end at A&M that his father said, you know, the going price was $600,000 um, for him. And that's, that's a tight end. Um, and he ended up going to A&M and he, the father said they never took any money, but there were two SEC schools that were willing to outbid A&M every day of the week to get this kid to come and play for them. So I just think the, if you look at college basketball, what the rewards are to make it to a final four or even to a sweet 16 or an elite eight. And now with 12 teams likely going into a college football playoff, I mean, I mean, thank God, I think in a lot of ways for name image and likeness, mm -hmm. because it's going to, it's going to give the kids the kind of cash that they need to survive and more. But I think in some ways, um, it's going to open the doors in ways for people to say, okay, the corruption is kind of going to go on top of the table now uh, in certain ways, because if you want to give somebody $50,000 to come sign autographs at your car dealership um, for a series of weekends, um, then, then that money, 
that that's the incentive maybe to come to the school rather than just a straight up cash deal to get there. Though I wouldn't for a second doubt that, you know, that those offers will also be made in some places. Oh yeah. Cause I mean, look, I, I heard Johnny Manziel over the weekend saying, dude, if, if they had opened it up like they uh, have now, he goes, dude, I would have gotten the bag him, Reggie Bush, all those guys, but you're right. Bo Jackson, think oh, about Bo Jackson. Boy, I mean, God. man. Yeah. I, cause, I, Cause I'm with you now it's going to be biggest boosters win. And I still think the programs that, that we, you mentioned will still be on top because they have the most money. Uh, it'll be in Ohio State. It'll be in Alabama. It'll be the SEC schools um, who are able to afford these kids and say the exact same thing. Hey, we've got a booster down the street running a car dealership. Come down, do a couple giveaways on the weekends, the day after the game, sign some autographs, uh, and then we'll pay you that way. I don't know how the smaller schools can compete with that kind of money. Um, unless they have a, and they can't compete with the $40 million that comes in through the regional television networks. And that, that's to me has been the, that infusion of cash into the, um, into the big time programs, whether it's the big 10, the ACC, certainly the SEC, um, PAC 12, um, that's fueled the coaching salaries. It's fueled that this continuing industrial arms race and facilities, um, where everybody's got to out you know, jacuzzi or out, you, you sleeping bed and in, 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 in the locker room kind of thing. And rightly so in a lot of ways. I mean, I, I for the longest time, I was not in favor of paying athletes because I just felt like it was a Pandora's box that once it was open, you were never going to be able to control it. But I think now the money is so high. And the fact that this is a 47 a week, 47 weeks a year job in these major college programs, they get four or five weeks off if they're not conditioning, if they're not in training camp, if they're not in, in, um, in fall camp, if they're not in the season, if they're not in the playoffs, it's, it's an unbelievable grind. At the same time, they're trying to get an education. Um, And that to me is, is worth whatever they can figure out how these players should be compensated. And, um, you know, to me, it's so funny. I just, it's an aside, but I think it's important. Um, the day that, you know, sort of independence day, the day that the name image and likeness ground shifted, Sonny Vaccaro called me because we, we have a long history together with the Ed O'Bannon case and Michael Hosfeld, who was the attorney that, that really was the, at the heart of the Austin case and everything else. And Sonny had gotten thousands or hundreds of calls and texts during the day but he, I was so grateful that he called me because we go back a long ways on that, on that story. And, and, um, cause I'd always been pushing to get that on the network and pushing to get it on, um, to get national coverage of what was happening with Sonny and Ed. And, um, you know, that was, that was just a ground shifting day and it's going to be fascinating to see what's going to happen going forward because I mean, the word chaos keeps getting used, but I, I think it's a pretty good word because I think it's going to be absolutely chaotic until, they can kind of find some sort of common ground um, between the schools and between the states and the conferences. Yeah, because right now you have Barstool Sports over the weekend just saying, hey, we're open for business. Who wants to be here? Thousands of athletes, you know, college athletes and applications to join Barstool Sports. They were taking it. It wasn't just football and basketball. No, it was everybody. It was every sport. And male and female. I mean, it was like women's volleyball players. Yeah, guys, soccer player. Like, it was wild. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how you 
police it. The other thing that I wonder about it is if you start making great cash, what's the incentive to keep playing hard and practicing and all that other stuff? Because that's going to eat into your practice time when you're worried about getting these deals done so you can start making money from a, from a bar stool or, or even us because we've, we've talked about it behind the scenes over here. Yeah, I think it's I, – I don't, I don't think anybody honestly – I mean, of all the years I've covered sports – I mean, it's going on now. I mean, God, 40 or 40 years. This is the single biggest um, shift, seismic shift in the landscape of college sports that I've ever seen. And when the ground opens up and things start to topple and move, you really have no idea what's going to fall in and who's going to stay on on stable ground. And um it's going to be fascinating to see what's going to happen in the next year or so, or even longer as athletes try to cash in schools, try to rein it in um, boosters. Um, I mean, there's a whole now, and I, I just on my Twitter feed, there's just a whole culture of companies now that are doing all these NF, NFTs. They're doing crypto. They're doing um, name, image, and likeness deals for these athletes. And I, I didn't even know those people existed until about a week ago. Oh yeah. There's this whole cottage industry where um, in a matter of hours, sometimes you can make tens of thousands of dollars for an image. And that to me is as a college football coach right now, or a college basketball coach, I would be, I might well be just crawled up in a corner and just going, I'll see you in like three years. I don't know (laughs) what's going to happen. We have uh, Chuck Liddell's on our network and we have his show on our network and he just did an NFT deal. And I was like, how much is that? And once they told me the number, I was like, oh my God. And Chuck's like, yeah, dude, I'll stand there. Let's take some photos. <laughs> no kidding. I know it's amazing, but look, it is what it is. And, and I, you know, in a lot of ways, the NCA brought this on itself. I mean, they could have come up with a plan a long time ago. They could have put, you know, they could have put a, a match to the whole amateurism uh, charade that was going on. They spent untold millions of dollars defending an indefensible position regarding amateurism in college sports. And, you know, uh, the fact that Mark Emmerich um, is still leading this association to me is it's, it boggles my mind. And I know it boggles the minds of a lot of really prominent athletic directors um, and people of influence in college sports. And, um, you know, I don't think the NCAA has done itself any, any good um, in how it's handled. Does um, it ever? From, yeah. From, from the O'Bannon case. Uh, d- does it ever is the question is like, no, no. really. I mean, <laughs> no. it's an upset when they actually get something right, it's... you know, and I, and I, I have a lot of friends there still, and I have a lot of respect for the job that the enforcement di- division is trying to do, but it's really almost next to impossible. So, um, and the money keeps pouring in, you know, I mean, the, the fact that the, the CBS contract with Turner is a, about a billion dollars a year, which runs that organization. Um, they're not going to, um, one second, that's just going to tell my wife, I'll call you later. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we'll see. I mean, it, 
this 12 team playoff, as I mentioned, it's going to be, it'll just be bonkers, you know, if it goes to 12, which I don't think there's any reason to believe that it won't. No, financially, I, that's, that's what uh, all the networks want. That's what the colleges want. And I don't even think the top schools like the Ohio States, the Alabamas and all those guys care because they're still getting a buy. And then they're going to play an easy team. They're still going to be in the same spot they were. So it's not really going to affect them either. Um, it seems to be a win-win for everybody else, and and nobody it's bitches under about, about fifteen games. So, you know, you're playing almost an NFL season now for for a, for a college player, and right. you know that just is um, to me it's torturous. I, I, and I I I've, I'm close to the Alabama program, and and you know and and what goes on down there, and I have such great respect for Nick and what he does. But I, you know, the, that they work down there. They oh, work yeah. every single day, and. Um, you know, the pressure, um, I know talking to, you know, I'm close with Terry, his wife, and it's just an enormous amount of pressure that you stack. Nick and Terry can handle it because they've been doing it for so long, but you're stacking so much pressure on top of these athletes now. And yes, they're going to get paid. They're going to get compensated, but still it doesn't, in the days of social media now, I don't think it, it, um, it, it's going to do them any good in terms of, uh, you know, a fumble or an interception or the wrong play at the wrong time. Uh, especially when you tack on, legalized sports betting um you know good luck with that so, you know? look sometimes you have to yell at a child for costing you three thousand dollars that's what was that's what made tiger woods so good yeah. you know what i'm saying sometimes you just gotta scream at children yeah you don't know and then flipping this over into, into sports journalism like i felt like you were in the golden era of it um because now you can't say or do anything uh especially at espn i mean we're seeing what's happening with rachel nichols and all that other stuff today I, I felt like you were in the best of it, um, but I, I've heard some journalists say, no, you guys are heading into it because of the money that's involved in podcasts. Now, Dan, Dan Lebatar just got three years, $50 million. I know what Pat McAfee's deal is. How do you view it personally? Well, I'm very grateful that I grew up when I grew up and I got to Sports Illustrated in 82 when, you know, it was a murderer's row of some of the best writers and you can start with Frank DeFord and Curry Kirkpatrick and Rick Riley was there, Kenny Moore, William Oscar Johnson. I mean, Doug Looney, Jack McCallum. I mean, it was just this, you know, Sally Jenkins was there for a while. It was just an incredible Dan Jenkins. It was an incredible group. And I, and I was really grateful to be part of that, you know, under Gil Rogan and then Mark Mulvoy. Um, the television side of things, I had a 30 year run in network television, which is, I think really unusual in these days to be, to be at that level for so long, to do pieces for 60 minutes, to do pieces for 10 years for real sports. Um, I mean, I'm just really grateful that I had an opportunity to work with people where the journalism came first to try to tell the story as fairly and as accurately and as sometimes emotionally as humanly possible. Um, I have a bit of a crusader in me when it comes to issues because I covered a lot of issues. So, yeah, I think I was I was lucky. I got the you know, I mean, I got I got I got everything that I could ever want out of the out of the business in terms of of the television side and the journalism side. Um, you know, I don't have a podcast. I've been talked to by a lot of people about doing one. I think it's it's easy to say yes to. It's really hard to do well. Um, really hard to do well. And there's so many of them now to be able to cut through in that. Um, and you guys know, here I am talking to you. Um, I just think that's really, it's really hard to do. And I'm not going to do something unless I can do it as well as I possibly can. 
but I, I just think there's just so much noise right now that it's really hard to cut through in a way that's meaningful and important. Um, you know, like I read Dan Wetzel every time Dan Wetzel writes something because I think he's the best sports columnist in, in America. I think Sally Jenkins is, if Dan is one, Sally's one A. There's other people, Greg Bishop from Sports Illustrated. I'll read anything that Greg writes. Karen Krauss from the New York Times, Sam Farmer from the LA Times. They're, they're, just, they're just total pros in what, in what they're doing. I have more issues with people that are, that are just, that are just spouting off opinions um, based on little or no facts, trying to make a name for themselves by um, igniting somebody else's life, at, you know, at the, for their own personal benefit. That's not the kind of journalism I, I want to be part of. And thank God I wasn't part of it. So, but I still have a deep belief that at its core, um, there are a lot of people doing really good work right now. And it's just harder for those people to rise up to the point where they're being heard because they're being drowned out by so much other noise that I just find to be, um, it's just unprofessional in a lot of ways. Do you think that's the sheer volume of it? Because I mean, yeah, back in your day, back yeah, in your day, you know, there's Sports Illustrated, and I yeah. can't even think of another sports magazine. Well, there was no cable. There was no there streaming. Was inside, there was no cable. It was yeah. Inside Sports. It was Sports Illustrated for a while. It was the Sporting News before that went defunct. Yeah, I mean, now, I mean, here we are talking, you know, on a podcast. I, I, I just don't know how you. It's really like for the levitards of the world to cut through for some of the other really primary podcasters to cut through for you guys to have all the networks that you have, that's really unusual. And I'm, you know, I'm talking to some pretty high powered people these days to see what I might do next. And my whole thing is, is how are we going to cut through, even though there's some big name people behind it, it's like, even with the big names and even with you have a big streaming service, or even if you have a great idea, um, man, oh man, to, to break through is really hard in a positive way. You can break through and self-immolate in a day. And that's, at this point in time, honestly, all I can do is, is say something stupid one time and, and put an end to a, you know, an award-winning brilliant career. career. Yeah. And go one day and then that's, that's the first line in your obituary. And I've seen that happen to people that I have great respect for. And I, I live, I really kind of live in fear of doing something like that, that I, where I would have an opinion that would cut across perhaps the current feelings on certain subjects and that, and then you just get crucified and it's just not worth it at this point in time. I don't need the, I don't need the adjective, you know? Yeah, I understand. It's uh, sports. I can tell you the the way to break through now. Everything is um, everything revolves around gambling. So you're on the right track there. Yeah, yeah because if, if, if you can pick winners, like that's how our sports show became successful was picking winners on that. Uh, on the other side of it, I mean, we I started podcast seven years ago, so it was kind of new ish to the to the field, yeah. and then it grew after that. But uh, got lucky with picking the election. Um, you know, I picked uh, 2016. Every single state 
and uh, except for Pennsylvania for Trump. And then that kind of took off, and I was one of few people wow. to do that. And then um, celebrity guests and, and things like that, things go viral and whatnot. But you're right. How do you cut through the noise uh, and when there's over 800,000 podcasts out there? And, uh, yeah, it's... I don't know how you do it in a way that, I mean, because the temptation is, and I understand it, the temptation is to just raise the volume, you know, because that, that will, the louder you, the louder you yell, is it the more likely you'll be heard? Or are you just part of a crowd that's yelling so loud that nobody gets heard? I don't, I don't really know the answer to that, but it's, it's, I find oftentimes that when you speak lower, when you lower the volume and you actually have something to say and you say it in the right place, it has a bigger impact. And that's really hard to do. Um, and so that's where like my next projects are, are the kinds of things when they come out, they're, they're big and, they, and they're going to be, I think, presented in a certain way where people will notice but it's, I mean, we got lucky with Tiger Woods, I think, in a lot of ways, um, things that happened in his life as the book was coming out. I know a lot of people that have written great books that, in fact, they're stacked in my office that nobody's read. And yeah. that's because, you know, the wheel turns the wrong way for you sometimes. Yeah. If, uh, if you want my advice to me, like you're such a legend, I wouldn't even risk it. I really wouldn't. <laughs> like, I, I'm, I'm being dead serious. Like if you're rich enough with somebody like you, who is literally an all fucking timer, um, don't risk it on some shitbag show like mine, you know, because like I'm I'm the loudest. That's why um, I'm able to cut through and everything else. And I wouldn't yeah, risk it if I were you. Smart. And that's the thing. The other thing is that's not a bad combination. Loud and smart is, is, is actually pretty good. I mean, Stephen A has done an amazing job of being loud and smart on a lot of things. L loud and sometimes not so smart in other bro broadcasts. You're just like, you're just, you're just on too much. You know, you cannot be this prepared all the time. And so you're relying on producers or you're relying on just off the top of your head. And that's where you say shit that you just can't, you know, defend honestly in the end. And so to me, it's like, you're right. It's like, I say less now. And I, at times have had points I want to make on Twitter about certain programs particularly football programs. Um, and I just, I don't do it because I don't want to deal with the, with the, um, Backlash. well, yeah. no tweet has ever been worth it ever, ever no, in the no history single. of man. Yeah. No. Nope. Ever. No. And, and with you, honestly, you're so great. Just don't risk it. Cause like you, yeah. if you died tomorrow, you would be a legend off here too. So that's, uh, <laughs> Uh, real quick, because I, I know you're a busy guy and, and you got to get out of here. Um, uh, two more questions for you. One, was there, was there a moment uh, or a game or an event that you were at that you forgot you were a reporter and you were just a fan and you were like, oh my God, I can't believe what's happening right now? Um, that's a good question. There's been a lot of times I've been absolutely awed by what I saw. I mean, I go back to, um, you know, when the Patriots beat the Carolina Panthers in the Super Bowl, I was on the sidelines in, in Houston for that. And that huge second half where the Patriots, both teams were just playing lights out. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is as good as it gets. 
I've seen some AFC championship games, which I always felt were played. I always kind of compared them to planes. Like preseason was a prop plane, you know, which is kind of putter and nobody wanted to get hurt. Regular season was sort of a, you know, a regional jet that would take you from one to another. That the playoffs, the beginning of the playoffs would be sort of that cross country flight. The AFC championship games were like the Concord. They were like supersonic. They were played at such speeds and such intensity that you were, I mean, I saw some people get run over. Like I saw Mo Lewis run into Terrell Davis when Terrell was the man and Mo was a beast just as a linebacker for the Jets. The sound of that collision, I thought somebody had died. I mean, I was like, <laughs> I literally, my, was, my microphone was always off, but I remember saying, oh my God, I don't know whether Terrell's going to get up. And he just popped right up like, you know, he had run into a, a telephone pole, but came out and everything was fine. That and I think um, watching Lance Armstrong in the Tour de France, um, whether it was on Alpe d'Huez or whether it was on one of the other, just these epic climbs that he would make. And we always knew there was a point in the tour where Lance was basically going to turn around to the Peloton and everybody that was chasing him and going, I'll see you later. Basically, fuck you. I'm going to win the race right here. And those were the kind of moments where you go, I'm watching whatever Lance's personal stuff, you know, and I have thoughts about that, but it was, it was epic to watch him just, and everybody was, was amazing. The Tour de France is filled with, with riders that are just otherworldly, but to see him just turn around and basically go, okay, um, now you're going to see Lance Armstrong. That was pretty awe-inspiring. And because I wasn't covering that with a microphone in my hand, I was doing it for CBS for a, a big show on Sunday. That's where I could kind of get lost in the crowds and lost in the moment. Um, but the one thing you do when you do a lot of these games is you never forget you're on television because if you, for one moment, say the wrong thing or do something stupid, um, you know, there's millions of people that are going to find out about that in about three seconds. So. Okay. And then last question for you here. Uh, who was your, the, your, your favorite athlete of all time to interview? I know everybody's got one. Who was the best interview for you that you enjoyed the most? Well, when he was, when he was ready to engage, um, and he did sometimes, um, you know, Peyton Manning is about as good as it gets. And for me to talk to somebody about the game, um, you know, and understanding football, um, I'm just trying to think of, uh, well, I can tell you when Nick Saban wants to engage, um, and go to places where he talks about his father and he talks about bear and he talks about, you know, what it's like to, to, to really what greatness is all about. Um, I could sit and talk to Nick for hours on end because I always walk away from him inspired to want him like what you were saying before. Uh, my career has been built on. I wanted always wanted to be the best of the best. I wasn't interested in just being the best. I wanted to be the best of a generation or be remembered for certain kinds of reporting and certain kinds of integrity and credibility. And I'm drawn to people like that. I'm drawn to the Tom Brady's of the world, the Peyton's of the world, the Knicks of the world, the Bill Belichick's of the world who aren't around just to be the best of their generation. They're around to be the best of all time. 
And I'm not putting myself in that category, but I'm saying that I did strive for that. And in striving for that, then good things happen, I think. Yeah. And, and in my opinion, you really are. Um, and you did it. So I, I wouldn't risk it on a podcast or somewhere else or on a tweet. Uh, everything you're doing is correct. Uh, yeah. If I, it, yes, I would, I would. Yeah. No need to no need to uh, burn down a national treasure. No, no, <laughs> no. you're good to go. Yeah. Uh, this is the point in the show we get to the drinking bro of the week. Wh- wh- who is someone who has inspired you or helped you become the person you are today? Who would you like to give the drinking bro of the week to? Uh, I'd like to give it to a guy by the name of uh, James Hinga. James Hinga was my was my journalism teacher in tenth grade at Losser High School in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And he's the guy that first lit the fire for me. You know, that was it when he, um, and that was, that was the Watergate era that just, you know, the beginning of that. And uh, so I dedicated one of my books to him, James Hingo. So if he's still around and still alive and listening to this, thanks. uh, Thanks, Jim. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, and thank you, Armin, for being here today. Thanks, it was really an enjoyed it. absolute so pleasure. Uh, legend um, and a, a look, childhood hero. And I'm, I'm getting to do some of the stuff you got to do, but uh, I will never reach you know, the heights that uh, you did. Raising the bar. That's the way to do it. I appreciate it. Thank you for being here today. For Hot Bob, Armin, I'm Ross Patterson. This is Drinking Bros Sports. Good night, everyone.